Welcome captives and captive friends to episode 15 of the Global Captive Podcast, supported by legacy specialists R and Q. My name is Richard Kutcher and my co-host this week is Mr. Paul Owens, CEO of the Willis Towers Watson Global Captive Practice. Paul, welcome to the pod. Well, thank you, Richard. I'm privileged to be here. It's a great thing you're doing here for the industry as a whole and uh, fully supportive so thank you thank you for inviting me thank you paul it's good to uh, good to finally get this one in the diary loads to talk about today but now is a good time to remind you that you can find and subscribe to the global captive podcast on all good podcast platforms itunes apple Podcasts, spotify google podcasts and many more please do also find us on linkedin and twitter at captive podcast in this episode our captive owner interview is with sean barnes cfo of united educators a rrg domiciled in vermont and dan kazela a us-based tax partner at crow but paul the captive industry knows you well as ceo of the willis towers watson global captive practice but you had been at willis towers watson for most of the previous uh, century i think before before uh, taking on that role so could you just enlighten for us uh, kind of your life pre-captives yeah um I'm an accountant by trade and I joined a company, I needed to get a job, I joined a company that I thought was a publishing company called Faber and Faber. Uh, it took about 15 minutes to realise it was a real um, financial services insurance broker. That was 30 years ago and I joined on the 17th of September 1990 but as a finance guy I worked in group uh, and then the business uh, and I eventually became the COO of the UK regulated entity in, in the UK dealt with the FCA and the PRA a lot, uh, then it was time to do another job. And um, I put my hand up to build the global captive practice at Willis Towns Watson. So kind of taking on the reins from uh, Malcolm Cutts Watson, I presume, because uh, he was chairman of the practice, so it's like a different job. But. Yeah, well, there wasn't actually uh, a single practice. Um, there was a bit in the US, the leader there. There was a bit in International, which is Malcolm. And there was a bit in Asia, which uh, floating around. And I actually proposed we should bring it all together and create one standard practice. And so before you put your hand up for that job, how much did you really know about the, the captive market before before that took place? And, and what was your first impressions of it on joining? I'll be honest, I knew very little. Uh, but I had been uh, exposed in some respects. But, uh, the, the cap- some of the captive operations reported into the division uh, I worked in. We'd had a few challenges, we'd had a few issues, but I didn't really know what it did. First impressions of it as well? Yeah, very interesting. I, um, I suddenly realised it's a small sector, a very small sector. Everybody knows everybody else. But the really nice thing about it is full of professionals. Um, and many of those have become friends and colleagues throughout the years. Hugely deep client relationships that you partner with. Um, but also they love a conference, don't they? How many conferences are there? Yeah, there are too, there are too many, in my opinion. Uh, we, we do love a conference, uh, but in, I think every domicile in the world having its own conference is probably not quite uh, quite, quite, quite necessary. Paul, it's already been announced uh, that you'll be retiring from, from Willis in the next 12 months, I believe. Uh, do you have any plans, uh, or will you be just set, staying off into the sunset? Interesting question, Richard. I think um, the clue is in the uh, the announcement. I'm going to retire from Willis. 30 years in the same company is interesting. Um, I've been doing this role for five years. Many of my peers don't really get to five years. They move on. The travel is absolutely brutal. Uh, I'm reminded that um, sometimes can be on the road for 200 days a year. So that, that's quite brutal. Um, so it's time for a change. 
But more importantly, I think I've learned a lot, got a lot of experience, and I want to give that back. And I'm talking to numerous people at the moment about opportunities. And as and when they come up, I'm sure uh, you will find out. <laughs> and if anyone wants any help, give me a call. <laughs> I'm sure I will. I hope I will find out. That's uh, one of my one of my uh, few skills, I think. Uh, but one of the biggest developments during your tenure at Willis and the captive practice has been the merger with Towers Watson, which of course has a very successful and well-respected international employee benefits division. And we've talked a little bit about EB on, on the podcast so far, but uh, not, not a lot yet. How easy was that integration and combining the captive consulting and management expertise with, with the guys at EB? A really interesting time, actually. And uh, when we started coming together, it was um, a bit like your first date or dogs sniffing around each other and very, very cautious. Uh, but very soon we all realised that we were in the same business we were all there to help our clients and the proposition as a combined proposition was uh, was incredibly powerful my my remit has always been about working hard and having fun and and uh, working with our colleagues in the old eb side um that became a bit of fun but we worked hard as well at the same time when we first came together we were known as legacy willis and Will- legacy towers watson yeah. it's not anymore it's willis towers watson um and i've got to i've got to pass a lot of thanks on to one person mark cook who is who is one of the experts in uh, mr uh, mr eb i think yeah. is one of the yeah. phrases used yeah. for him very much so and uh, we've done a lot together he brought a completely different dimension into what we did and I, we've done a lot, but once we learned to trust each other, it, w- it was great. And I, in this EB space, I, my analogy is, is a bit like the building trade. So Mark and his team are the architects. They're the Richard Rogers of this, of this world, and we're the builders. So we build it, they design it, but together we're, we're world beating. Um, maybe as I, as I leave uh, Willis, I might want to give him the name of my tailor because he certainly needs to improve things. <laughs> Well, I will. Uh, hopefully, he will be listening, and otherwise, I'll put this to him when we get him on to uh, to a future episode. Paul, and I'm sure we have something to to say uh, say back to that. Um, looking at the wider picture, though, we're obviously in a pretty historical and chaotic moment here in London and the United Kingdom regarding the dreaded B word Brexit. Uh, you and I could probably discuss and debate the politics of that all day long. We may well do over lunch in, in a second. But with regards to captives, there isn't really. A huge direct impact from 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 what I see. The obvious place to look, however, for for impact would be Gibraltar, which is a British overseas territory inside the EU, and as such has enjoyed a rather unique status outside the UK insurance regulatory regime, but benefiting from direct writing across Europe. How have you seen the the Brexit uncertainty impact uh, Gibraltar as, as as an insurance and captive domicile? Well, let's start at the top. I think this, this industry is fantastic at rising to the challenge, and change creates opportunities. Uh, but the key is everyone working together. We've seen certainly some uh, um, captives move around, uh, and there will be more. Gibraltar, I think, is a fascinating place. It's, I think it's, well, it's, it's misunderstood. And the, the advantage of both Gibraltar and Malta are that there is a very there is a pragmatic approach to business they're uh, both are very hard both are very determined but they uh, want to do business talking through with uh, people like albert the finance minister and joe bannister they're all very pro working together and 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 building the captive business 
I think the danger in all of this is that some of the European countries are seeing this as a renationalisation. So um, various parties are saying, well, you need to bring your captive back to France because Malta can't support it or Gibraltar can't support it. I think that's the wrong approach. The, right, the, the approach should be we want to do more business because in the current environment, we really do need to work together. Yeah, and obviously the benefit of these, the whole purpose or kind of raison d'etre for these captive domiciles that kind of evolved was that they were specialist centers for managing captives and the, the regulatory expertise and the local infrastructure supporting those whereas for whatever reasons that hadn't developed in france or in germany or, or the uk we've heard a lot about captives and insurers potentially or having swapped between gibraltar and malta if you were a gibraltar captive or insurer and in, and, and particularly enjoying direct writing across all of the eu mainly continental europe you might want to end up in malta and, and vice versa if you're a malta primarily writing in the uk you might want to end up back in gibraltar so there seems to be some movement in both directions Are you guys at willis have you seen uh, seen that yeah absolutely a number of our clients have uh, switched both ways the great thing about it is it's been relatively smooth uh, both jurisdictions are trying to help each other. I think with the with the overall target to make the industry carry on, support the clients' needs. Um, but we're certainly seeing more, and I suspect there's going to be more. Uh, however, I have picked up on the on the uh, grapevine that some clients will not be allowed to move because they don't fit maybe the business model in the location in which they're trying to move. Well, another one to, to keep watching, and obviously the Brexit deadline may be pushed back again and again. We'll have to find out in a, in a, in a few weeks time i expect well moving on our captive owner interview this week is with sean barnes cfo of united educators a reciprocal risk potential group domiciled in vermont united educators provides liability insurance and risk management services to more than 1600 members representing schools colleges and universities throughout the united states and sean began by telling me a bit about the asset base of the rrg UE was founded in 1987, so in its current form, it's a reciprocal risk retention group, and over 84% of our surplus is in what we call subscriber savings accounts, which are our members' individual balances um, within United Educators. What is your role at United Educators? So I am the Chief Financial Officer and VP of Finance and Administration, and in that capacity, I oversee our external investment advisors. I'm in charge of accounting and finance, HR, and I oversee our part-time legal staff. On the topic of investments, how closely do you try and align investment strategy with underwriting performance? If there is a dip, for example, in underwriting performance, would that have an impact on on the investment strategy? For the most part, we look at them as uh, separate and distinct. And we try and run the underwriting side of our business somewhere between a 95 and a 99% combined ratio try to never go over 100. But from the investment standpoint, we're really there to support the business in trying to maximize our return on equity, investment income, but within parameters that can support our A rating through multiple business cycles. And are there times when you might anticipate more claims uh, and might want to be more liquid of the captive? I mean, we had a guest on the podcast a few a few, a few episodes ago uh, who mentioned the um, Caribbean Risk Facility, which is a, is a SPC based in Cayman. It covers natu- nat- natural catastrophe risks uh, for various countries in the, in the Caribbean. And they know, obviously, when hurricane season comes around, they need to be more liquid to, uh, to have cash available to pay claims. Is there any, any considerations like that for you guys? We have multiple levers of liquidity. So from an overall operations point of view, it's not like a property carrier where you know for a given set of months you're going to have a big cash demand. But 
a large driver for our allocation to our agency portfolio is the principal paydowns they get. So that offers about three times the amount of interest income we get. We get back as principal repayments, which provides uh, good cash flow. On top of the agency security uh, cash flow we get, we also have cash calls within our reinsurance contracts we would use for a large cash demand. And then finally, we just became a member of the Federal Home Loan Bank system uh, this year as kind of a, a fail-safe liquidity vehicle um, if we needed to get access to cash in a, the time of a market disruption. Yeah, so that's really interesting that you, you guys are a member of the uh, FHLB system. A few years ago, and I think ongoing, there's been quite a, few, quite a lot of controversy around captives becoming members of the FHLB to access what some people describe as kind of cheap capital. I think the the main concern of the FHLB or the FHFA, which kind of regulates and kind of runs the FHLB, was that quite a lot of real estate owned captives were just using it purely for for cash purposes. So bearing that environment in mind, how did you find the application process? Were the FHLB particularly suspicious of you guys as, as you were a captive? The main uh, salesperson relationship manager, I'm not sure what you want to call him, he was pretty familiar with us where we were not the first risk retention group that he had put through. So he was generally familiar with the process. Uh, so if it was another captive would look to Lou, I would expect that person to know whether or not they would or would not qualify. From the application standpoint, the only place where we had any friction was within the general counsel's office where I felt like there was more corporate awareness that it's a unique structure and probably had a little bit more review than would have had otherwise. They required us to make some small tweaks to some of our governing documents, but nothing that I would call uh, overly burdensome. Obviously, United Educators is a very established and mature captive with, with a big staff, and obviously you're a finance guy. So do you still retain the services of an investment manager, and how do you balance that control over the investment strategy? So yes, we do. We engage DWS, who is our core fixed income manager. And in addition to doing the core fixed income portfolio, they also give us strategic asset allocation help across the, the, entire, the entirety of all the assets. Uh, from a control point of view, most of what we do is review the reports and the quarterly stuff that, that they provide us, but they have full discretion within the investment policy statement that we've put together. So it really allows the manager to own the benchmark within the parameters that we've given him ahead of time. And then just lastly, how closely involved in the investment oversight is the board of UE and do you have a a dedicated investment committee? We do have a dedicated investment committee. The board through the investment committee is very active in oversight. We're fortunate to have a very sophisticated investment committee members from what their role normally focuses on is strategy. So they'll help guide management and we work as a partnership to set the long-term strategy of the investments where a lot of the tactical day-to-day falls down to me and then delegated to our outside managers. The Global Captive Podcast is supported by RQ, the award-winning provider of exit solutions for legacy liabilities and companies in runoff. RQ can provide a wide range of solutions and has A-rated paper across the United States and Europe. LPTs, novations, business transfers and acquisition are all frequently used and tailored to the seller's requirement whether in runoff or fully active but seeking greater efficiency. If you have legacy, you should talk to R&Q. Welcome back to part two of the Global Captive podcast. Paul, the big talking point in the insurance industry right now is the hardening market. Now, we're not just seeing price rises in some lines, but also tied to cover and some carriers even withdrawing from some markets altogether. 
one knock-on effect of a hard market can be more interest or utilization of captives and i'm certainly hearing pretty encouraging stories from several european on and offshore domiciles on increased activity i'm aware myself of two very large companies at advanced stages of setting up new captives in malta one of which being the hartman group discussed um, where we had andrew kergel from the hartman group on, on episode 11 discussing this uh, exact thing are you witnessing this increased activity in Europe at Willis Towers, Watson? And how much do you think is starting to be driven by the hardening market? Undoubtedly, the harding, hard market is here. Um, having worked in this industry for 30 years and quarter after quarter is soft market, soft market, soft market. Um, we're seeing it now. We are getting lots of inquiries, particularly around certain lines of business and coverage where, uh, as you said, the prices are going through the roof or the underwriters and carriers are just withdrawing cover. Um, certain areas such as the DNO market is becoming incredibly competitive. I can always remember someone explaining to me the uh, the, the effect of the, hard, the the soft market versus the hard market in the aviation industry. Um, the uh, Just at 9-11, the cost of insurance was equivalent to first-class ticket. Over the years, it went to the premium economy economy, then it went to the first-class meal, then it went to the premium economy meal, then the economy meal, and now it's the price of the peanut if you can get a peanut on a plane. Um, that's the effect. Now it's going back towards the front of the plane and probably about time because it because the rates of investments, the capital that's being put up. Um, and it's all good news for the, the captive industry, I think, as a whole. The, the one thing I think is a challenge, we as an industry, both captives and the insurance industry, is there are lots of people that have never seen this before. You only have to walk around Lime Street and see brokers with their head in their hands, oh, woe is me, because they've never done it before. And it's a real challenge. Yeah, definitely one that um, my uh, colleagues at Airmic are kind of looking at closely. On Just lastly, on, on the hard market, is it true and do you see where you've maybe consulted with a prospective client a couple of years ago the, the it kind of the case for the captive made sense but they were still enjoying quite good rates so they were maybe put on the back burner they didn't want to put the time and effort and cost uh, more importantly into m- making that formation of some of those uh, prospective clients coming back to the table to say actually now maybe this is the time that we should be doing this Absolutely. Um, but always remember that it's not just about the economics. There's very, various strategic re- reasons for doing a captive, but, but finance is very important. Now, we're, we're having conversations with a, a number of people. We carry on with those conversations. They're now coming back. Yeah, we now need to do this. Okay, so our next interview is with Dan Kazela, tax partner at Crow in the United States. Dan discussed a number of tax developments in the US, but started with some background on Crow and the captive specialist firm it bought in 2015, Saslo, Lufkin and Buggy. Yeah, so Crow had acquired us on July 1, 2015. We merged in with them, and ever since then, we've been experiencing double-digit growth year after year, which is really phenomenal. And the main reason being is when we joined Crow, we were specialized, deep specialized, but Crow brought another brand of deep specialization. We've got international folks, we have state and local folks, we've got folks in transfer pricing. So we brought really our expertise in insurance to a greater platform. The other reason why I think that we've been able to sustain double-digit growth is we've grown in multiple markets. We've opened offices with insurance folks in Tampa, uh, New York City, Chicago, Dallas, in addition to the Tennessee office, the Vermont office, and the Connecticut office with the insurance folks that we already had. Internationally, 
We've opened an office with Neil Maynard in Cayman, and he has just done a wonderful job on Iowa and continuing to grow our brand. And we are going to continue to grow globally in our global footprint. It's been a recent initiative to make CAPTA a priority in our global practice when we're in over 130 or 160 countries. I'm not sure even how many countries we're in. But we have such a global footprint that I continue to see us grow more internationally as well. Great. So it'd be great to see you guys over in, in my neck of the woods in, in Europe sometime soon, hopefully. You're going to take me out to dinner. Yeah, I will do. I will do. So when it comes to actually working directly with customers, what kinds of tax issues do you advise captives on? Really, it runs the gamut of everything. So anything to do with their tax return liability, so federal income taxes, state income taxes, premium taxes we've been getting involved in, transactional work, so redomestications, lost portfolio transfers, and financial statement reporting. That's really our sweet spot and where we spend most of our time. So outside of the ongoing 831B debates, which we could talk on to all day long and we'll come on to later, what tax issues have been high on the minds of, of your clients in, in 2019? Yeah, so let's start with tax reform first. Tax reform is just all over everybody's mind. Even though we got a 21% haircut on the tax rate, it's just been a lot of uncertainty. So recently, as recent as today, as a matter of fact, some clarity has been coming around with the discount factor. So when you got unpaid loss reserves, we're allowed to deduct it, but the IRS makes us haircut it. It wasn't until recently, um, later in July, that we found out what those discount factors really were. So the uncertainty of what my tax liability is going to be, that was one of the major concerns. The beat tax, um, base erosion anti-abuse tax for those companies that are more on a global footprint international that was a major issue that we've been helping clients and still to this day we're helping clients with because of the uncertainty you have proposed regulations out there comments were provided so we're waiting for some final certainty there more international stuff is the PFIC um, passive foreign investment companies you had a lot of companies structured where they were non-control foreign corporations those have those companies have been struggling mightily with the new definitions of control foreign corporations to include 10% vote or value. Now the value test has cost some folks. And then the fact that there's a 25% test on the PFIC side um, where you might have thought that you didn't have to pick up anything. Now you've got a passive foreign investment company. Those have been really tough to deal with. We recently got proposed regs on that, that area of the law. But again, those proposed regs laid many more issues than when we read those they brought back some of the old 2015 concepts into there so we're currently dealing with that federal income tax aside and tax reform aside the washington state issues the self-procurement issues um actually washington looks at it as a premium tax so we're looking at that dealing with it by company by company suggesting each company quantify their exposure and feel and see what they do is right Okay, then, so on to the dreaded 831B topic. Despite uh, a string of victories for the IRS in uh, the U.S. tax court cases concerning 831B captives, are you still seeing poorly constructed captive structures come your way and and being shown in front of you? Mainly what I'm seeing is a slowdown in the growth in that market. So those small captives that are making the 831B election, um, I don't see the growth that much anymore. I've seen many shut down. I've also some, seen some take a let's wait and see approach. In other words, let's wait and see how these cases come. Let's see if there's more guidance coming out. Um, as far as setups, I, I don't see many more. I, I see a slowdown in the 
setting up of the companies. Um, and quite honestly, I've had smaller companies come to me. I've assisted with the structure, and I said, look, guys, here's the state of it. If I were you, I would not make this election right now. And they've listened to the advice and said, look, we're in it for risk management purposes. We're not in it for the 831B election, and they have not made the election. Great. So uh, I think you've probably already answered this question, but what effect do you think the IRS victories are having on the U.S. captive market? Yeah, so I think the slowdown of the formations in the smaller companies, but to be quite honest, the larger captives are sitting there saying, well, geez, what do these rulings mean to us? And some of the guidance that was put out in the courts, right, wrong, or indifferent, um, many can debate that and argue it, but they're looking back at it and the large captives are saying, what do the interpretations mean to us? How do I feel that this is going to affect me? And is there going to be, a, for lack of a better word, a creep of those interpretations into the large captive world? Dan touched there on the Washington State issue. And just this week, in fact, it was announced by the uh, Washington State Insurance Commissioner, Mike Creedler, that Alaska Air is the latest victim to fall foul of his clampdown. The airline, which has used its Hawaii captive ASA Insurance Inc. since forming it in 2016, has been fined $2.5 million despite making use of the self-reporting tool encouraged by Creedler, I think, a year ago now, uh, maybe 18 months. Alaska Air are in good company, though, because after uh, public actions have also been taken and disclosures have also been made about Microsoft and Costco. Paul, is this a growing problem for captives in the US or is this going to stay restricted to the Washington state companies? I think it's going to be a growing uh, issue. Um, One of the phrases that's banded around is the tax grab. Uh, We know 2008 hit the economy hard globally. Corporates, um, governments are looking at ways of raising revenue and this this is seen as a bit of a soft target. Uh, the captive industry is not a tax play. It never has been a tax play. Yeah, there's been some benefits, but you do a captive not because of tax. And I think, though, we as an industry get caught incorrectly that this is all about tax. It's not. And we're up against, as I've said, uh, governments and agencies that, that need the money. So there's going to be a tax grab. Um, so I think this will carry on. Recently, you've seen the UK government announce that uh, they're going to be taxing e-commerce companies. Uh, how that is going to affect our relationships with the US, how that's going to affect other industries, I don't know. I think what's interesting with the Washington State issue is particularly in this Alaska Air one, and again, I'm not as clued in as I used to be to these issues and, and, and not tracking it as closely, but from what I've read from the um, industry press, is Alaska Air did, did self-report, did say, OK, we think we, we believe we owe this amount. Washington State have said, thank you very much for that, but we also believe you owe us more than that and you haven't reported properly. And uh, so Mike Creedler, the commissioner in Washington State, isn't mucking about. You know, he's not just saying, come to me and give me some money. He's saying, we're going to go after you and, and try and pin you for everything we believe you owe us. And it sounds like Alaska Air might be challenging that back. So whereas Microsoft uh, did settle with, uh, with Washington State and uh, Costco self-reported and that was publicized, Alaska Air may well want to fight this and that might create some precedent either way but i think you're right i think uh, certainly states such as new york or california might be looking at this and seeing if if they could uh, get involved in the party i think the i think the fact that they self-reported and then that was uh put to one side i think that personally i think that's a big issue and i think it will it will almost certainly uh change the view of many corporates who may have been co- been thinking about it 
Yeah, no, certainly. So is it coming up in, in conversation? I, I spoke to your colleague in a couple of episodes ago, Jim Swankey, and he mentioned it was coming up with conversations uh, with, with clients in the US. Is it kind of on, on the hot topics for your clients? Uh, very much so, yeah. yeah. Although one, one thing I will say, we are not tax advisors, so uh, we would talk with the clients and uh, um, work with tax advisors. Pass them on to Dan. Yeah, or someone else. Dan and Tom. Yeah. Dan and Tom Jones, <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, of course. Okay, well, lastly, Paul, we've previously debated uh, in episode five when you appeared with Jason Flatsbeard and Gary Osborne what the future of captive management might look like. What are the problems, do you think, or challenges with the, with the current model of captive managers? I think there's one big challenge, which is all about people. Um, you know, we all talk about transformational change. We all talk about analytics, uh, automation, artificial intelligence, I think the, the biggest challenge is about people. Um, I, I go to various conferences and meetings and everyone's sort of grey hair, they're men, and we, you feel in a very comfortable club, where are the leaders for the future? Uh, I certainly applaud um, Dan Toll's uh, approach to uh, trying to widen the, the, the gene pool uh, of the, the leaders of the future. And unless we address this, this will severely impact uh, our industry as a whole. So that, I think, is the biggest challenge. I think another challenge for our clients, and I probably shouldn't knock uh, knock our competitors, but the industry is becoming polarised. I think as Marsh and Aon now, through their mergers and acquisitions, are, are enormous capital managers, and then there's the rest. Um, and that, to some extent, creates opportunities. Um, it also cuts down choice. So... Um, uh, but back to the original comment is about the people. We only have people. We don't make widgets. It's about people, relationships, and expertise. So unless we can build our own, get more people into the industry, I don't see a very bright future. But I am an optimist. I think we will do as a as a, a as a group and as an industry combined. We will address that and we will solve it. Well, as you mentioned, there are a few uh, good initiatives being kind of uh, driven now by Seeker in particular around their uh, kind of next generation task force and Amplify Women initiatives, which Dan told discussed with us a couple of episodes ago. And I think they're good ideas and we'll have to hope that they, you know, it shouldn't be reliant on them, but also obviously some of the companies that you've already mentioned, uh, the insurers, the brokers of all sizes, obviously if they can encourage people into this industry and give them the education around captives particularly, and expose them to captives through kind of, I know that you do it at Willis House Watch and you have the rotation scheme and I think Alexandra Gedge came through that, she came across the captive practice through that. I think that they're all great initiatives, but we are running out of time and thank you to all of our guests this week, Sean Barnes at United Educators, Dan Kazela at Crow and of course, Paul Owens. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Richard. See you next time, captives. <laughs>